This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton hosting all this week and next on News Talk Today. Thanks for joining me on this somewhat gray, at least here in Toronto, day. A couple of stories uh, that caught my eye this morning that we're going to kick off the show with related to both renting and owning. Two hot topics, whether you're out for a coffee, you're listening to talk radio, or you're just flipping through social media and other places. And the topic today that caught my attention was to rent or to own. And after the break and after our first guest, we'll uh, take an opportunity to open up the phone lines at 1-855-633-1010 and never forget to text us at 71010 on the topic. So I grew up thinking that when you could first possibly do it, you should put your money into real estate. Buy a home. It was a better uh, opportunity long-term for you. It might even be better in the short-term financially if you could get that down payment and start to pay off and have some equity. But be given the housing market, given interest rates, given the economy, given everything that we're going through, we are now starting to see that it's cheaper to own than to rent believe it or not. In fact, in Vancouver, one of the first cities of a, of a major size where the flip has occurred. A number of cities, it is now between $100 and $300 more a month to rent than it is to own. And the column that caught my attention on those stats today is by Rob Carrick, personal finance columnist with the Globe and Mail. And Rick, uh, Rob joins us this afternoon to talk about his column, what he's discovered, and whether or not, if you're in the housing market one way or another, you should rent or you should own. Welcome to News Talk Today, Rob. Hi there. So tell me, what did you discover in terms of whether it's better to rent or to own in this particular market in Canada? Well, um, what I found was that the some of the long-term advantages of renting, renting has some advantages, they're all but disappeared because of what's happening in the housing market. To me, you know, I think most people are happiest if they own a house, and there's all these constant debate about whether it's better to rent or to own, and there used to be benefits to renting, though. Um, for instance, economic mobility. I want to get a better job. I just give notice and boom, I'm gone. But it's so hard to find an affordable rental now that if you've got one, you're afraid to leave. You're not mobile anymore. Um, also, uh, owners pay a lot more per month than renters do. It's You can't just compare the rent and the mortgage payment. Owners have... They have uh, property taxes and higher insurance utility bills, and they have home maintenance. But rents are so high now that the savings the renters get has shrunk to uh, to very small proportions. And um, my overall conclusion was that I used to be able to make a case for renting. I'm not so, so sure I can anymore. Well, and as I just outlined, uh, a story also in the Globe and Mail in the paper that you write for is that that, that has actually flipped on the financial side of things for cities like Vancouver. So not only are there broader benefits where you've made the case for renting, but in fact, there's no financial benefit on a monthly basis whatsoever. Yeah, I think that comparison doesn't take into consideration the full cost of ownership because there's no way that 
owning is ever cheaper than renting. I mean, you know what, as soon as your roof goes or your driveway cracks or your basement leaks, you're into thousands and thousands of dollars worth of repairs that the renter doesn't have. You add all those into the picture and it makes home ownership more expensive. Now, if you want to just look at rents versus mortgage rates, and mortgage payments, I should say, you know, maybe, maybe we're flipping on either side of the line, but you know what, uh, the, the full package of costs that you have when you, uh, when you own, that is a full load to carry. And as expensive as rents are today, I don't think there's any renters out there who are paying the full cost of ownership. So we're talking to Rob Carrick of a, a financial columnist for the uh, Globe and Mail on the personal financial side. So say you're, you're let's pick an age, 24 years old, uh, you just finished U of T, you've got a good first job, you've been living in your parents' basement, you, you know, saving, not paying any rent whatsoever. What would your advice be in this market? Well, you know, when you're 24 years old, I do not know why you would want to tie yourself down to owning a house. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of cost. I might try to rent for a little while and build your career. Maybe you're going to move to another city and you don't want to tie yourself down to uh, to where you are today. Um, I do think that uh, renting is, I mean... I just think at 24, you're pretty young to commit to commit to a house. Now, if you're a little bit older and you are ready to make the move to something more permanent, you know, I think the, you know, housing market is benefiting right now from falling prices. That's great. But the problem is that interest rates are still very high. So prices come down, mortgage rates go up. You're left with the same affordability as we had maybe 12 months ago when everybody was complaining, there's no way I'll ever get a house. So I think if you sit tight we may find in the next several months that prices will come down and interest rates may stabilize. And maybe at that point, that could be a good time to get into the housing market. So my my father was a big proponent, and I recognize I bought my first house in a different time, so 20 years ago. But my father was a big proponent of just equity in your home. And I am so thankful I got into the market with, uh, I think my first mortgage rate was around 6%. And of course, every time I've negotiated, it had come down. Luckily, I don't have to negotiate for another couple of years. And if not for that equity in my home, when I got married and we had kids, I would never have been able to afford a family home in the neighborhood we wanted to live in without that equity. Yeah, home equity is great, but you know what? You can build comparable wealth to that as a renter, or at least you used to be able to, because you take the money you're not pumping into property taxes and home upkeep as a renter, and you invest that. If you're a disciplined investor, you can, over the years, invest that in a mix of stocks and bonds and build up a very, very substantial investment portfolio. And you say, well, I've got the home equity, that's better. But and it is in a way because you can sell a principal residence tax-free. Right. But the investments you build up as a renter are much more liquid and, and don't undersell the advantages of that because eventually you're going to get to a point in life uh, when your house is, you've built up a ton of equity and it's later in life and you think, I'd like to use some of that equity. And okay, you can, but you have to go pay interest to get it buy a home equity line of credit or a reverse mortgage. The renter who's rented for, let's say, four decades and, in, and invested uh, diligently is going to be left with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of investments that they can access anytime they want. I'm not going to say one is better than the other or one is worse than the other, but you can come up with comparable wealth. But you know what I think people really like about housing is the stability. You own the place. You can do what you want with it. No landlord's going to rent evict you or jack up your rent. Um, you know, that's that's one of the biggest problems right now. Renting right now is the rent increases are astronomical. 
Well, and I want to ask you about that because, of course, advocates also, you know, often come forward and say that's why we need rent controls in a city like Toronto or in a city like Vancouver. And yet, I mean, decades and decades have proven to us that when you when you have a, a lack of supply in renting, rent controls only deepen that problem. So is yeah. there an answer to yeah. the rental stock? Well, um, look, you know what? I can find people who are going to say rent controls are essential to protect people from greedy landlords. And I'm going to hear people say rent controls prevent developers from building badly needed rental units. But what I, what I do know for sure is that the situation today is pathetic. We have so many young people who need affordable places to live, and we do not have enough stock. We've got old apartment buildings, which are nice places to live, and they are rent controlled. We've got people renting out newer condos, which are not rent controlled, and the, and the um, supply and dynamic uh, supply and de- demand dynamics are so out of whack that we're seeing double-digit double rent increases far in excess of what just the regular inflation rate is. Everybody thinks, oh, inflation is very bad. Well, in rental land, it's even worse. We need more supply in the worst way. But how do we get there? Well, I guess it's up to municipalities to come, somehow get developers to do it, get rid of the red tape, free them up a little bit to build. And I'm not talking about luxury rental units because I do see those starting to go up in big cities. I'm talking about affordable rental where middle class people can move in. You know what? Cities, get on it. We're talking with Rob Carrick, a personal finance columnist, um, regarding his column today in the Globe and Mail, asking the big question, is it in real estate better to own or rent give us a shout let us know your thoughts on us thanks for joining us rob 1-866-1855-633-1010 uh, i'm deb hutton on news talk today it's what's happening right now this is news talk today on the iHeartRadio talk network Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk today, all this week and next. Actually, tomorrow I am in for uh, Amanda Galbraith, who is our regular host for Free for All Fridays from 1 till 2. So I'll be back in that chair tomorrow and then all next week on News Talk today. In the last segment, we chatted with Rob Carrick, who's a personal finance columnist for the Globe and Mail, and an interesting column out this morning saying the big question today in real estate is whether renting or owning is worse for your finances. Not better for your finances, but worse for your finances. So we'd like to take your calls and your text, 71010 for the text at one 1010 for your calls. Are you thinking about renting versus owning? Are you about to make the big leap maybe from mom and dad's basement? Or maybe you're downsizing. Some of the highest rents in some of the cities in terms of the percentage of renters is now in that 60-plus generation. They've decided to sell the family home, and instead of downsizing to another home, they've made the choice to rent. We'd like to hear from you. What impacted your change, and what choice did you make? Let's first go to Lisa in Ajax. Welcome to News Talk Today, Lisa. Hi, Deb. Thanks. Um, I come at this from a bit of a different perspective because I'm in my late 50s. I've owned my home for about 30 years. It gets paid off next March. Yay. Congrats. Um, Thank you. But I look at it that when I retire, my income goes way down. And so I own my house. I no longer have to pay rent. I don't have to worry about rent going up. That's a big worry off my mind. My my mother-in-law rented after she retired and I saw how much she struggled 
because her income was so much lower. So for me, having the house was an investment for my retirement. So fixed income once you retire and rents that can go up without a huge amount of warning, obviously there are some curbs for them, that is just not on for you. Yeah, exactly. Now, how do you plan for those big unexpected uh, expenses in houses, which you don't have when you're renting? Yeah, you mean the roof we just had to replace? There you go. You got um, a few years on that, at least. That's, that's where, and I think you mentioned having equity in the house. So yep. we went to the bank and we applied for a line of credit. We put the roof against that line of credit, and we're paying that off every month as well. All right, so for you at this stage in life, Lisa, it is still home ownership versus renting. Yeah, definitely. All right, thanks for the call. 1-855-633-1010 or text us at 71010. We want to hear your thoughts. Better to rent, better to own. Or as Rob Carrick, our guest in the last segment said, which is the least evil when it comes to your finances? Let's go to Tarek. Tarek, welcome to News Talk today. Hi, thank you. Thanks for taking my call. All right. Actually, owning or renting? What's your view? Uh, owning. Owning for sure. I'm in my late 20s. I have two properties, and I'm going to keep going. That's uh, that's the plan. It's uh, 10 times better. Uh, like you said, like it's a home equity. You buy one house, you build the equity in it, and then you take the money out, and it's tax-free. You buy another property, and you just keep doing the same thing. And then in 25 years, 25 years, 30 years, your tenant's paying your mortgage down, you just own them freely. So in 30 years, how many properties do you have? It's, it's all through the bank's money. So you, so you own one that you live in and you own one that you rent? Yes. So I own one that I live in. And during the pandemic, when prices went up, I, uh, I took out almost 100000 What other job is going to give you that 100000 in in like two years? So I took that money, bought another house, and that house, my tenant is fully paying for everything, for my insurance and uh, mortgage payments. So why not? So I, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know, how did you get that first down payment? Because that's the oh, toughie. That, that's, so that's the one that you're going to have to work for. So I have a job. I work for it. I got my first down payment, bought my first house, waited two years, two, three years, put an equity in it, and then just took the money out and uh, bought another house. So pretty much I own another house with not my money from the bank's money. And I think that, that's the way to do it. You just keep building equity. There's no other job that's going to pay you as much as the equity you gain from the house. All right. Thanks for the call, Tarek. Let's right. go to uh, Tom in Toronto. Tom, what do you say? Ownership or renting? Renting is the way to go. I had a house for many years. I was house poor. We were house poor, me and my wife. Um, a downsized, and we are now in a co-op. Nobody talks about co-ops. Um, I don't know why. Everything's all about condo and rental markets, but a co-op is an amazing situation, and uh, we've got very reasonable rents, and uh, we wouldn't go back to home ownership. Co-op's the way to go. All right, so tell us a little bit about it. Why is it so good for you? Well, it's roughly half the cost of what a regular ownership, uh, a rental would be. Um, so uh, we pay far less in rent. Now, we have to be on a board, so there's a co-op, uh, you know, you're supposed to, you know, help with the grass or help with, um, you know, flower beds and kind of stuff. Um, very small duties, 
And even then, it's very minimal as far as that goes. It's kind of a, a cooperative, right? So you sort of have to be cooperative. It's not just a strict rental that you're in and out all the time. You sort of have to invest a little bit of time, go to meetings, that kind of thing. But it's a community. And um, I don't know why we're not building more, more cooperative um, um, rental units. Uh, I think it stopped in the late 90s. Uh, I don't think there's any new co-ops. But I think it should be back on the um, on 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 the on the map as far as really reasonable rent um, and uh, a, a fine way to live. All right, Tom. Thanks for that great suggestion. Tom says co-ops. It doesn't have to be just full ownership or just renting. A little bit of involvement equity instead of sweat equity into your property. Let's go to Eric in Montreal. Eric, what's your view on this? Rent or own? Well, I have to say own. Okay. Um, I live in down. I live in Old Montreal. I still live in Old Montreal. Went through a divorce eight years ago. New condos were going up. So I had a choice. I still had a few bucks put away to put a down payment and buy. I decided to rent. Uh, unfortunately, this condo is almost tripled in value, and my rent has gone up. And I don't own anything. I would have made my money, and I have money in the bank. I own a condo. A condo, and then look, look where I am now. I'm still renting, and the only person made money is the owner. Yeah, see, that's my view. As, as I said earlier in the show, if I hadn't sort of made that really tough effort to get a down payment in my late 20s, I would not have had the equity and the ability to afford a, a home once we I got married and decided to have kids. Uh, do you remember at the time, Eric, what the differential was in terms of rent to own? Like if you had bought the uh, the condo, for example, what the, your mortgage payment would have been versus rent? Was it significant? It was. It was. It wasn't accurate. It was a little bit more. But at the end of the day, I'd own the place. You know, yeah. it was well worth it. There's no. There's no real repairs in a condo. Last the guy hasn't done anything really here. All uh, right. Other than the condo, other than the condo fees, so he's made his money and he's laughing, and I'm still paying him. It's All right, some re- some regrets yeah. from Eric in Montreal. Michael in London, let's go to you. I think you might have the last word on this. Michael, rent or own? Well, I'm renting. Um, okay. I must I, I must admit that owning is probably smarter. But okay. Renting uh, renting is easier. Okay. Um, and I'm at a stage in my life where. I don't want to have to worry about the roof or the or the refrigerator or whatever. I, I just want to live my life. So um, I think if you can afford to rent, it's 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 an easier life, less stress, less things to worry about. But I have to admit that financially, if I was a financial advisor, I I, I would tell you to own. Which is interesting because, as I said, Rob Carrick quite often says, just rent and and make your money elsewhere. Invest your money elsewhere as opposed to all those unexpected costs. So uh, that's, that's switching. That's exactly what I do. So for my real estate portfolio, I invest with uh, the simple investor, and uh, I'm doing quite well there. And they manage everything, and they take care of it. And I don't have to worry about it. But if I owned my house, I'd have to worry about, you know, you know, the roof and all those good things. All right, Michael, thanks so much. Thanks so much for the call. Appreciate it. I had to cut Michael off a little bit there. We are out of time. Coming up after the break, we are going to do our daily check in in what at what's happening out of Ottawa in the investigation into the Emergencies Act, whether or not the government made the right call earlier this year when they invoked the act. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. 
keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. That's a little mellow in the afternoon, Tony. I don't know. We want to keep going with the show. We had some great callers in the last segment talking about whether to rent to own. And today we're doing it a little bit later than I've done earlier in the week. But we are uh, have a daily feature where we check in with one of our national journalists and see what's going on in Ottawa in the Emergencies Act inquiry. Joining us today is Annie Bergeron-Oliver, a reporter for CTV National News Parliamentary Bureau. Welcome to News Talk Today, Annie. Thanks for having me. So what's been happening while I was getting ready for the show and our listeners were having lunch and all those good things? What's happening on the Hill? So right now we have been hearing from Patricia Ferguson. So she is the acting deputy chief of Ottawa Police. And her testimony has been quite interesting. Not only has she talked a lot about infighting within Ottawa Police, the fact that, you know, different levels in the higher up of Ottawa Police Command weren't getting along. She also talked about the fact that Ottawa Police really didn't seem like they were ready for the convoy. She says that repeatedly Chief Slowly, who is now no longer Chief of Ottawa Police, was telling the Ottawa Police Service that this is only a convoy that would last until the weekend. And in fact, Ottawa Police did not have an operational or contingency plan past Monday at noon. So let's remember, the convoy started leaving Ottawa, you know, the Monday or Tuesday. They got to here on the Friday. And just fast forward three days, Ottawa Police no longer had a plan on how to deal with the convoy. They didn't think that the protesters would become entrenched. They assumed they would leave, just like they had at previous protests. And even as much as a week after they arrived, Ottawa police still didn't have a plan and were basically scrambling, one, to figure out what to do, and two, to get the people in place. They talked about how there are staffing issues. Ferguson said that, you know, they lost a lot of staff during the pandemic. They also lost a lot of expertise. So really, she painted a picture of, uh, you know, a police service that was scrambling, that was sort of in chaos and really was in over its head. Let's uh, let's hear. Actually, we've got some clips from Ferguson's testimony this morning. When we um, address the community preparing them for this, we set a prolonged event. And for us, the experience in that was over the three days you know, of, of the weekend. So did we err in, in our assessment of this? Clearly we did. I'd say clearly they did. She also talked about uh, the mistake that was made, I think, on on the intelligence reports. And she said Ottawa police um, was supposed to be getting OPP intel bulletins known as Project Hendon. Here's what she said about that. I think even the Hendon reports were left it quite open that this could be, um, you know, a, a prolonged uh, event. But then in another sentence indicated that they were expecting they would be leaving town by the end of the weekend or by the middle of the following week. So lots of confusion, as you pointed out, Annie. But we've also heard earlier in the week that there were other pretty open pieces of evidence that this convoy was not coming for just a short little protest. Yeah. And you know what's also interesting? I just want to go back to those intelligence reports you were talking about from the OPP. She just finished testifying and confirms that, yes, she got copies of those intelligence reports from the OPP that detailed, 
you know, what the convoy looked like, what organizers wanted, the fact that there was potentially no exit strategy. But Ferguson said because her role was not directly intelligence, she didn't actually read any of the reports that were in her inbox until about six days after the convoy had started. She said she assumed that somebody else in the intelligence department would know and would forward that information to her. And what just happened, the um, one of the lawyers asked her, as early as January 20th, the OPP in those intelligence bulletins was suggesting that there might not be an exit strategy. Isn't that something that you, Ferguson, who was in charge of sort of planning the event and the, the protest, should know about? And she said, yes, perhaps that is something I should know about. So I think what this goes back to is sort of a lack of communication, a lack of clear strategy, and a lack of leadership. What's also interesting is the OPP put out, uh, I guess, an internal document after this was over, and perhaps it was throughout, and it was just tabled. And it talks about the OPP's assessment of the Ottawa police. It says that in their opinion, the OPP believed the OPS had low morale, that there was a high level of frustration. There was a lack of leadership at Ottawa Police. There was no clear direction from anyone about what to do and how to do it, that they didn't really have anybody in charge of intelligence and intelligence sharing. And uh, this is all interesting because it really goes back to Ottawa Police. You look at you know the, the recent testimonies and officials are saying that the province needed to step in sooner, that they didn't provide officers early enough. But there have been other people over the last few days who have testified that both the province and the federal government seem to have concerns about the way Ottawa police was handling this, that they didn't really have a plan on how they could use additional resources and that that potentially led to some of the delay. Ferguson also testified today that Chief Slowly seemed a little suspicious of RCMP getting involved. And she said she wasn't sure if it was because of his previous interactions or information and sharing that they had had, but that Slowly, who was the police chief at the time, seemed sort of suspicious that the RCMP were there, that they wanted to know more information, and that they wanted to get involved. So he wanted the officers and he wanted the help, but Ferguson says he just wanted to do whatever he wanted with the RCMP. He didn't really want the input. And the final thing I'll say is that it's also interesting here because the Ottawa police talked about, you know, scrambling basically to come up with a plan. And they didn't actually have a plan on how to move forward until this joint command center was created about a week and a half in, in which the OPS had to work side by side with the RCMP and with the OPP. So did she go so far as to hang uh, the former police chief out to dry? She was fairly supportive of him in certain aspects, saying, you know, she understood that he was stressed, that he was frustrated, and, you know, trying to do as best as he could. But there were definitely times where she said that they, you know, had disagreements. Uh, at one point, she says she even offered her resignation in this specific role because she felt that she was being undermined at every step she was going. She said slowly told her to take some time off and reconsider and that he wanted her there. But she did detail a number of instances in which slowly didn't seem to want to listen to advice of other people, that it was sort of his way or the highway. And, you know, throughout this, what we're really seeing is that it was slowly was the one who made that final assessment that this would be a short term protest, which it was not. And it was him who made other decisions like he wanted to negotiate this and that the clear focus was negotiating with protesters, which some people thought, you know, that might not be the right way to go about it. And what do we expect from her? Is she done now? 
So uh, normally they've been going till about 3, 3.30 for the first witness. Uh, okay. We haven't heard from any of the convoy lawyers yet. So they're going to be up and that'll be really interesting. And then after that, we have somebody from the OPP, an officer with the OPP who will be up, likely asked questions about, you know, what was the relationship like with Ottawa police? What role did the OPP have once they finally got on board? And you'll probably hear the OPP questioned about their overall assessment uh, of Ottawa police, which I just mentioned. They said low morale, frustration, lack of leadership, basically painting OPS as an organization organization that was in over its head. So that will come up sometime this afternoon and into the early evening will be the OPP aspect of things, which I also think will be really interesting. You know, it's it's a little unsettling when when you talk about the testimony and and the current acting police chief's role in that time frame that she's now still albeit in an acting capacity, head of the Ottawa Police Service. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because slowly got removed, but there were a number of individuals who were highly involved in the convoy who are still there. You know, let's look at uh, also Steve Bell, who's currently the acting police chief. He was the head of intelligence throughout this entire um, convoy. This was the man who was responsible for the daily intelligence briefings, gathering information, doing some of these investigations and sharing that information moving forward. We know that there was a major problem there. We've heard it testified. The OPP have said the same thing. And he's the head of the OPS currently as acting chief. He actually might be current chief. Um, He's expected to testify a little bit later. So I think what we're really seeing here is sort of this public unfolding of what a mess the OPS was at the time for a wide variety of reasons. We're seeing this infighting at all different levels. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut you there. Annie Bergeron-Oliver, reporter for CTV National News, Parliamentary Bureau, we thank you so much for giving us an update on what's happening in the Emergencies Act inquiry. I'm Deb Hutton. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this week and next for News Talk Today. Earlier today, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada decided that they would not hear an appeal by survivors of a Catholic-run residential school near Fort Albany, Ontario. In an ongoing dispute with the federal government over the impact of withheld documents on compensation claims. The group who is had uh, launched the appeal said they have no plans to stop fighting it. This uh, is a legal dispute that dates back to about 2007 when the residential school compensation process began. The settlement included a, a fixed payout for survivors and a claims adjudication mechanism, which became known as IAP, the Independent Assessment Process, for those who suffered extreme cases of abuse. The deal required Canada to hand over relevant, relevant documents to ac- accurately adjudicate IAP claims, yet the government withheld thousands of pages of provincial police records stemming from a mid-1990s probe into abuse at St. Anne's. So decision this morning by the Supreme Court, the top court did not give reasons for its decision that they would not hear the appeal. To chat with us this afternoon about what this all means and and what her group will do for next steps is Evelyn Korkmaz, a St. Anne's residential school survivor herself. Evelyn is also the founding member of Ending Clergy Abuse and Advocates for Clergy Trauma Survivors in Canada. Evelyn, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you. So you attended St. Anne's Residential School between 1969, I believe, and 1972. 
Yes, that's correct. And you have uh, several times told your story of just a terrible uh, abuse at the hands of those in positions of responsibility at St. Anne's. Yes. And how do you feel about the decision this morning to not have your appeal heard? Well, um, of course, I'm disappointed, but I'm not surprised. Um, the, uh, the justice system has never worked for the Indigenous people of Canada, even though in 2014, um, St. Anne's um, proved that uh, the Canadian government and the Catholic Church um, uh, did not meet their obligations. Um, they withheld documents. Uh, the Canadian government released the Church of their obligation to pay the $30 million for healing across Canada. And also, uh, you know, we learned that um, some of those documents were sent to Rome. That Those documents don't belong in Rome, they belong here. And um, obviously there was backroom deals going on. And that's, you know, a breach. And it, it surprises me that the Supreme Court of Canada does not, not want to hear our, you know, leave of appeal when it's, you know, concerning child sexual abuse, um, you know, murder. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it's just beyond my, you know, ability to comprehend that this is not a topic important enough for the Supreme Court to hear. We're talking with Evelyn Korkmaz, who's a St. Anne's residential school survivor and involved in a group that has been trying to get to the bottom of some documentation that they believe will help support uh, their case and their cause uh, as we move through through the process of, of reconciliation and of supports for school survivors. What if the, if the top court had decided to hear this appeal, what were you hoping to get out of that process? Well, I wanted them to hear it so we could prove that the Canadian government breached the contract by not releasing the documents, by making backroom deals, which are not allowed, um, the I uh, the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement was passed into law, so they they're breaking the law by not releasing these documents, um, by not honoring the agreement. Period. But yet they're allowed to get away with it. And what do you, you think know? is contained in these documents that would further your cause? Well, that's, an, you know, a very good question. It's, uh, you know, I often wonder why the government doesn't want to release these documents. Obviously, there's more in those documents that, you know, more abuse or more genocide um, in those documents that were not included in the IRSA agreement. So... Maybe they don't want us to know that, you know, there's... You know, there's talk of experimentation, um, torture, uh, 
the uh, 215 uh, unmarked graves that were found in June that shocked the whole world. And obviously there's graves, uh, you know, grave sites all over um, across Canada at, you know, residential school locations. So obviously there's more information in there that they're trying to hide. So they're scared or worried that there is going to be another class action suit. And you said yesterday in advance of the decision that if uh, if the Supreme Court decided not to allow you to appeal, that you would pursue other avenues. Can you talk a little bit about what you have in mind? Well, you know, I, I think I'm going to take a break for a while. <laughs> um, but I, I, I can't let this go. Uh, the reason why I can't let it go, it, it has affected my childhood, my adolescence, and my adulthood. Not just me, but everybody on my reserve. You know, it, it's destroyed us as a people. And we can't allow this to happen and to continue to happen today. Now, someone you've had in your court is Timmins James Bay, New Democratic MP, Charlie Angus. Does he have any thoughts for you on, on how to take this to the next steps with the government? Have you talked to him about what happens next? No, I haven't uh, spoken with anybody today. Um, today is just a full day of interviews, um, but I haven't talked to my team. I imagine they're doing interviews as well. Evelyn Corkmax, a St. Anne's residential school survivor, talking to us this afternoon about the disappointing decision from her perspective by the Supreme Court of Canada to not hear an appeal for her organization. We thank you for your time, Evelyn, and we wish you the best going forward. Thank you. So coming up after the one o'clock break, we are going to have a regular feature of the show, which is called Overhyped. And underplayed. And we're going to talk about the top stories of the week, most of them nationally based. And uh, we have a fill in overhyped, underplayed uh, contestant today. Bob Reed, Scott Reed is uh, filling in elsewhere on the iHeartRadio network. So Bob Reed is going to join us, and we will talk about many things, including Danielle Smith. Uh, who's Premier of Alberta, the Emergencies Act, as we've been doing. We'll talk inflation. We'll talk about Loblaws and their no-name products. A host of topics for you coming up after 1 o'clock. You're listening to Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today. This is the iHeart Radio Network. We'll see you after the break. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. We're into Hour 2 of News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this week and next for two hours of, we hope, some fun, but most importantly, some information about the big news stories of the day. And at this time, every week, great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. 
That is, of course, the music for Overhyped and Underplayed. This is a regular segment every week. Usually we have Scott Reed, CTV political commentator and former senior advisor to Prime Minister Paul Martin in this seat. And we get his perspective on whether topics are overhyped or underpaid. Played Today, though, joining me is a very longtime friend, good friend, Bob Reed, veteran communications advisor. Ten years he served as senior advisor to the Premier of Ontario, which is where I got to know Bob, and he's now the principal at BroadwayStrategies.com. Those of you who listen to the Jerry Agar show on News Talk 1010 will know that Bob is also the touchdowns and fumbles guy every Friday just before the end of Jerry's show at 1145. So I hope, Bob, welcome to News Talk today, by the way. Thank you, Deb. Nice I hope to be here. I hope we're not stealing some of your thunder for touchdowns and fumbles <laughs> tomorrow where you make some determinations based on communications. Uh, but regardless, I come on Thursdays with you, so that'll just have to take precedence this week. That's fine. That's fine. It's actually a, a handy warm-up. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start with Danielle Smith. Just a couple of weeks into the job of Premier of Alberta, she's been in hot water now twice in two weeks. The first, of course, was getting in trouble for saying that the unvaccinated were among the, in fact, I don't think she said among, the most discriminated group in her lifetime. But we're not going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about the second thing that she said that got her into trouble. (laughs) And in fact, let's listen to her exact comments. This was end of April in a live stream uh, a broadcast where she talked about uh, the peace plan for Ukraine and Russia. Here's her answer. So why would we be surprised if Russia is upset because Ukraine has nuclear weapons and has lied with the United States? So I think the only answer for Ukraine is neutrality. Now, she obviously stood by her comments initially until she didn't and issued a (laughs) categorical condemnation of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the suffering that has been inflicted on the Ukrainian people. Quote, I have directed my office to actively reach out to Alberta's Ukrainian community in order to ascertain immediate steps we can take to assist Ukrainian refugees to settle and integrate into communities across Alberta as quickly as possible. She finished by saying, I stand with Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. All right. Overhyped, Bob, or underplayed by the media? I got to go with underplayed because this is this is troubling. And, and why it's troubling people is she's two for two, as you noted. On her first day in office, she stuck her foot in it hard with that, uh, with that comment about the unvaccinated being the most discriminated against group she'd ever seen. And now, in short order, now this... This interview, the comments that she made uh, were not made this week or recently. They date back to April, but nonetheless, that tape has come back to bite her. And I would say wisely so. This time, she didn't sort of half-mile the explanation or or the response to it. She she was pretty pretty firm in saying they were ill-advised comments. And she said, my knowledge and opinion of this matter have drastically evolved since that time. I apologize for those previous comments. So she got that part right. But what is troubling is she sure seemed to mean it at the time. And basically, she was using Putin's talking points. And a lot of it was inaccurate. 
Ukraine has not had nuclear weapons on its soil for quite some time. And to simply say that, you know, if they weren't so cozy with the states and right on the border and having nukes pointed at, at Russia, I mean, how can you blame the Russians for having an issue with that? And she was pretty snippy in her tone, too. Like, am I missing something here? Well, yeah, she was. So I, I, I don't think this is this is, you know, mountains being made from molehills because, it does go to judgment. And what she's got to understand is she's now the premier of Alberta. And despite whether some of her views might have traction with some constituencies out there, she is now the premier of all Alberta. So she's got to learn to temper her language. And she's got to learn that hyperbole is not her friend. And so, as I said, ultimately, it goes to judgment. And that's the concern here. So these kinds of pronouncements are not overhyped. I, I think they will be underplayed if they're not getting the kind of attention that they've that they've received of late. So, yeah, I'm I'm going with underplayed. I got to agree with you, because, first of all, this was only five months ago. She clearly had in the back of her head that she might reenter public life. So, I mean, even as a talk show host, if you're thinking you might reemerge, you need to temper your language a little bit. Secondly, like the conflict was well on its way. This isn't a comment from prior to the conflict or some, you know, generic hypothetical that right. she engaged in. We were well into the Russian invasion of Ukraine when she made these comments. And the other thing I'll say about that, just to, to agree with you, Bob, is this didn't appear to be a flip comment. It appeared to be, at least from her perspective, a thoughtful comment on what was happening. It wasn't an offhanded remark. She actually had what seemed like a pretty firm position. Yeah, it was a fully baked opinion, and she was more than happy to, to go deep into it. It wasn't some kind of, you know, offhanded comment that, well, I didn't really mean that. And in a broader context, if you look at it this way, no, 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 she was all in. So I want to flip now to the Emergencies Act inquiry and what's happening in Ottawa. And I'll let you take this wherever you want to go with it, Bob, because if I look at the last number of days of testimony, it is really just uh, some people on the text board call it a soap opera. It's a he said, she said, he said kind of thing. There's lots of noise. There's a little bit of finger pointing. I mean, it's it's wonderful theater if you're interested in public policy and politics. But, I, I, you know, I do I do question, are we are we giving it too much play, myself included, as the host of News Talk today this week? Is it? overhyped or underplayed? Or is there a specific, Bob, that you think meets one of those tests as opposed to the inquiry generally? Well, I mean, I, I think we've got to look at it from the sort of big picture standpoint, because this is the first week. So naturally, it's going to dominate uh, discussion. It's going to dominate news, con uh, news coverage, rather. Uh, and there's been some pretty juicy stuff, really. I mean, there have been many examples uh, cited in testimony where calls for action on on one party's part or one group's part went unanswered. There have been uh, admissions of misjudgment having been made, particularly at the local policing level in Ottawa. And the ultimate question is, was the use of the Emergencies Act necessary? Was it the proper step at the time under the circumstances? Or was it a grievous overreach, which unnecessarily curtailed people's basic rights and freedoms? Now, as you know, Deb, when things go sideways in a big way for governments and or police services, 
it's never really quite that simple, right? There are a series of things that happen, of judgments that get made, of decisions, of mistakes, of failures, of underestimations. All of these things come together in sort of a perfect storm. And so given the candid nature of the stuff that we've we've heard so far, uh, I don't think it's under it's underplayed or I don't think it's uh, it's overhyped rather because this is such a big weapon this piece of legislation that it is entirely appropriate I think that it requires an inquiry anytime it's used that's a good thing for two reasons because one it it serves as a deterrent against any potential willy-nilly use of the big bat and and secondly because it requires this full airing of the laundry that's really the only way you can get to answer that fundamental question was it was it an overreach or not so i don't think this can be overhyped it's it's underplayed so far uh and now it probably will be as it drags on and people lose interest in it but it's something we do need to keep an eye on all right bob reed Thank you for pitch hitting today on Overhyped or Underplayed. We will listen to you tomorrow on the Jerry Agar Show on News Talk 1010 at 1145. Have a great day, my friend. Okay. Coming up after the break, we are going to talk about a new prime minister for the UK. What? A new prime minister? Didn't they just get a new prime minister? Well, that's what we're going to chat about. Liz Truss has stepped down as the shortest serving prime minister in UK history. I'm Deb Hutton. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Network. Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. I'm Deb Hutton, your host for News Talk Today this week. And my goodness, I woke up this morning, was reading about some stuff in the UK. And then all of a sudden we found out that Britain's new prime minister, six weeks into the job, had resigned. Let's listen to what she said. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. She's going to stay in the job for another few days until... There will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. Okay, listen to those last few words, our nation's economic stability, our fiscal plans. Joining us to chat about this surprising, or maybe not surprising, we'll see, development in the UK is Jill Rudder, a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, which is a London-based think tank looking at government effectiveness. An exciting time, Jill, over where you are. Uh, Well, exciting, um, slightly terrifying time, uh, because although I think it's probably looked... uh, for much of the last uh, last few days, as though it was inevitable that Liz Truss would go sometime if we'd reeled back to when she became prime minister back on the 6th of September. I don't think we'd have been thinking that we're about to face yet another Conservative leadership contest now. Which is, I believe, the fifth leader in six years for the Conservatives. Yeah, I mean, ever since David Cameron had that referendum, which he thought would settle the European issue within the Conservative Party back in 2016, he had to step down when uh, he got the wrong result in the referendum. From his point of view, we had Theresa May, who failed to get her Brexit deal through Parliament. 
Boris Johnson came in but ended up mired in scandal and behavioural problems. Liz Truss came in, uh, never had the support perhaps of enough MPs, but won the membership over with her promises of a new ideology, a new approach to boosting growth in the UK economy, cutting taxes, and then came slap up against the markets and crashed the UK economy. And uh, now we have another leader uh, about to be elected. And and we'll come back I just uh, on the what became known as trussonomics, because I think it would be helpful for us here in Canada to understand. I mean, we were listening a little bit, but just didn't expect this kind of thing to blow up, but get a sense of what caused this rapid decline in just 44 days. You know, she's been compared recently to a rotting head of lettuce, <laughs> and her personal approval rating had fallen to a negative 70. And what that means is the number of the percentage of people who think you positively uh, positively of you and the percentage of those who think negatively about you are netted out and hers was a net 70 minus yes, she, like crazy she, so uh-huh. what what happened in 44 days well i think what happened was she came in uh, she actually had quite a quiet uh, first couple of weeks, because that was absolutely dominated by the aftermath of the death of the Queen, which happened two days after Liz Truss became Prime Minister. Those last pictures of the Queen are with Liz Truss up at Balmoral. Uh, but then she and her Chancellor seemed absolutely determined to go hell for leather with their economic programme, and in particular, very big tax cuts. Uh, those tax cuts took people by surprise. Uh They spooked the markets because they were unfunded, but they also led a lot of people to question the judgment of the government because at a time when things were really quite difficult in the UK, they appeared to be prioritising tax handouts to people who were really extremely well off. So, you know, so there were question marks about the economic judgment and question marks as well about the political judgment. And really the government has... Uh, not really recovered from that. Um, that mini budget on a Friday morning, a really odd time to do a mini budget in the UK, uh, and really not very mini, was not accompanied by the normal sort of fiscal forecast we get from our independent fiscal council, the Office for Budget Responsibility, giving the impression that the government wasn't interested in what these sort of institutions have to say they Basically, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister had made clear that they were going to discard the old economic orthodoxy. And if you like, they were bitten back by the economic orthodoxy, came back with a vengeance and said, we don't think your plans are credible. Sterling started crashing. Uh, Markets look very good. And critically for the government, the interest rate on government debt started climbing up. And that led to changes in mortgage rates, lots of mortgage deals, lots of people in the UK judge the health of the economy by the health of the housing market. Lots of mortgage deals were withdrawn and other people who faced refinancing their mortgages were facing much, much higher interest rates than they expected. Interest rates were going up anyway. The government would say interest rates were going up, but then... People were talking, I think a lot of people were using a phrase that was used by the US economic professor, Paul Krugman, 
that we were all paying what was called a moron risk premium because of the government's approach to economic policy. A moron risk premium. We're talking with Jill Rudder, a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, which is a London-based think tank looking into government effectiveness on the news today that Prime Minister Liz Truss has resigned. I did see on one of the monitors, uh, Jill, in the studio that your markets have bounced back on the news of her resignation Yes, and that's always a bit of an indictment, frankly, of a prime minister, because I think the markets are thinking, well, actually, surely now we get a sort of grown-up prime minister. They've reacted quite well, I think, to the appointment of Jeremy Hunt uh, as chancellor, um, something this trust did when she sacked the chancellor, uh, the finance minister, last Friday. Um, But I think they're now thinking, actually, the demise of this trust heralds in an economic policy that the markets will find more credible, which is why sterling has, seems to have gone up a bit and uh, and the stock market as well. So, And that's a bit of an indictment of a prime minister when your demise is welcomed so much by the markets. We only have about 45 seconds left so, left, so I do want to turn to what happens next. You guys have a very odd way of electing uh, conservative leaders in terms of the system. This is all going to happen in the next week. What do you see happening? Because there's not really an obvious successor, is there? No, there isn't. There are a number of people who think there are obvious successors, but there aren't. What's interesting, we've only just seen the new rules for this contest. Uh, and what's very clear is that uh, anyone who wants to stand has to get a lot of MPs to nominate them. So whereas the threshold before was in the teens, this time you have to get 100 MPs to nominate you. There are 350 or so Conservative MPs, so you basically need a third of the party. So there's a maximum three candidates, possibly only two candidates, possibly only one candidate. So we may have a new prime minister. Two rounds with MPs on Monday, and if there's still two people standing, And it's possible that there'd only be one person at the end of that process. If there's still two people standing, then there will be a very quick online poll of members and we'll know the result by next Friday, the 28th of October. So interesting that that the math is such that your maximum number, if it all split that way, could be three candidates for prime minister of the UK. Yeah, I mean, I think they want to weed out lots of marginal candidates who are just positioning themselves for cabinet jobs. Uh, But it does mean that much of the contest will really be that battle to get over that nomination line. So you can imagine people are really hitting the phone lines for their preferred candidates uh, today, tomorrow, over the weekend. Nominations are now open. So it'll be interesting to see who's first over the line to the first 100. All right. And I'm going to ask you, Jill Rudder, who's your front runner horse? I don't do speculation, but the names <laughs> in the frame are Rishi Sunak, whose warnings have been vindicated but lost to Liz Truss, Penny Mordaunt, who uh, was just edged out of the final two by Liz Truss, um, possibly the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, who didn't run last time. But the other spectre at the feast is lots of people are talking about Boris Johnson, the former prime minister, making a comeback, and there's no bar on him standing this time around. Wow. So on that very interesting note, we thank you for your time and filling us in what's happening in the UK. You're listening to News Talk Today. I'm Deb Hutton. Coming up after the break, a brand new recipient of the Order of Canada. I've been battered, but I never bruised. It's not so bad. 
Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Wow, that is one of my favorite Great Big C songs. Thank you, Tony, for playing that. And the reason we are playing that intro to News Talk today, by the way, I'm Deb Hutton filling in as your host this week and next. The reason is because today the Governor General of Canada, the Honorable, Right Honorable Mary Simon, inducted a number of folks into the Order of Canada. And among those were someone, well, let me just read the pricey of this individual. For gifted singer-songwriter Sean McCann, music is medicine. After two decades of unparalleled success and coast-to-coast tours as a founding member of the folk rock band Great Big C, he's now a solo artist and bravely takes the stage to share his journey towards recovery. With his guitar, Old Brown, by his side, this devoted mental health advocate has engaged with numerous organizations across the country and inspires his audiences to express their stories through song. And we are so grateful to have the newest member of the Order of Canada, Sean McCann, joining us today. Welcome to News Talk Today, Sean. Hey, how are you all? Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm in better mood now that I got to listen to your music. Uh, But tell us, how are you feeling more importantly? This happened, what, 11 o'clock this morning? I literally just got back out. I just got out. I literally just finished. um, uh, About an hour ago is when I received the uh, the insignia, which was great, and my mom has already texted me twice to say how sh- how proud she really is, which oh, is great. Oh, I bet. That's amazing. Well, we are very, very grateful that you uh, agreed to join us on News Talk today on the iHeartRadio network. So tell us, I, I mean, we so many of us know you as, as one of the founding members of Great Big C, but you are now a solo artist. And I think most importantly for your Order of Canada, you are such an advocate for mental health. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, that's why I was recognized. It wasn't for the work with the band, uh, which I'm also proud of, but it was the work I've done since, which involves, I sobered up and uh, entered recovery almost 11 years ago. I've been on the straight and narrow, and uh, I started to follow a very different path than what I was on, and it was a lot of hard work, And I, but I got to meet some amazing people, and uh, at times, you know, it's been very frustrating. It's It's kind of hard work to do, especially when you're dealing with addiction and recovery, uh, so you get a little frustrated. So this this particular award, acknowledging my work in those in that area, is just very reassuring, and it, it encourages me to do more. You know, and uh, it's not like I'm, it's not like I'm done working. It's like this is the little little uh, push I needed to keep going. I'm you know, and not give up. The inspiration. Well, congratulations on 11 years sober. So tell us about uh, your new path, both in terms of song and as an. Uh, basically a, a motivational speaker. You, you're on tour coming up soon, is that correct? Yeah, I, I do. Uh, I still do lots of concerts. Uh, the music industry is uh, much like the journalistic industry has been squashed a bit by technology and advancement, but I still love it so much. And I, and I credit music with really uh, showing me the way through sobriety. Now, I used to make a living writing songs about partying and drinking and kitchen partying and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, but I've I've learned to write songs that I hope have a, a have a greater impact on the changing of lives of others, and uh, and bringing them like out of the darkness and the places you can get stuck because that's what addiction is a place you get stuck in. And uh, I've kind of reapplied my skill set. I still write anthems, but now they're not about drinking so much and forgetting your problems, but about facing them and doing the work and, and embracing 
the burden of helping yourself move forward in life. And you also talk a lot about uh, how love helps with that. Share a little bit about that. Well, I've learned I've learned in my lifetime that there's really, and we see it every day here, um, there's really one enemy that we all have in common, and 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 that's the anger that we that we have access to in our hearts and in our minds. And um, I've come to an anger is is something that comes from from trauma, and it's something we're all familiar with, and, and something we all kind of have to deal with. But it can lead you into a dark path. It can lead you to addiction and dependence, and it can ruin your life. But there's one thing that we must remember that we all have. There's one weapon that always works against anger, if we can just remember to access it, because we carry this in our hearts, too, and that is love. And that is what we need more of in the world today. We don't need more conflict. We don't need more polarization. We need more compassion, and we need more love. We're talking with Sean McCann, founding member of Great Big C, now a solo artist and a a tremendous advocate for recovery and mental health. He is one of the newest inductees into the Order of Canada, joining us just an hour after he received that great honor. So what comes next for you? I mean, so often people become, when they take a change in life, they become very small p political. I don't mean you know, partisan political, but your your efforts seem to be uh, less political and, and much more uh, personal and, and human in your approach. That's what works for me. I, I, politics is failing us right now, in my opinion, and, uh, and polar, the more polarized we get, the less useful politics becomes. It's, it's lost track of the middle, but people are people. And I will continue to try and draw people together in my own way. Um, and I do it through my musical keynote. Um, I call them musical keynotes. I do keynote speaking, but I always bring my guitar, Old Brown. And, uh, and I have an arsenal of songs that can deal with any number of subjects and troubles. Uh, I really feel that certainly post-pandemic, we've, we've all been through so much now, and at the end of it, we're still facing a lot of darkness and negative and anger on the news. And I'm going to try and be a little bright light that just walks through that. And if I can just help a few people, that would be worth it to me. Uh, when you do, when you try to help people and you try to act compassionately, I can, I can attest to this. It makes you feel better as a person because you're rising to what you're capable of being. And we're all capable of being a little better. And compassion is the way to get there. And as I said, you're doing that both through music, but also through sort of motivational interviews and, and talks. Do you have a song, I guess since 2014, when you when you talked about uh, your challenges, do you have a song that really, in your mind, you're most proud of that speaks to these issues? Yeah, I wrote a song called Stronger, which really was a game changer for me. I uh, When I was just very early in my recovery, I was... was I was having a hard time. I was people drink and use drugs for reasons, and I was come face to face with mine after 25 years of burying it in alcohol and drugs. And I sat down one day with a bottle of whiskey, and I stared at that bottle on the kitchen table for a long time. And uh, luckily for me, my guitar, Old Brown, was hanging on a, a guitar hanger on the wall, and I saw that guitar. And I didn't open the bottle. I picked up the guitar instead, and I poured my heart into it. And I wrote this song called Stronger. And uh, I knew I'd be okay after that, and I knew, I realized then how powerful a weapon against despair music can be. And I also know that, you know, people can change 
people can change. And that's what rang through to me today. Like, I guess I could have gotten an award like this or this award even for my work with the band, but to, to, to be able to change at the age of 44 and turn my life around and be somewhat successful and make a difference to myself and others, that, that is, uh, that's what I'm most proud of, really. Sean McCann, who's the, one of the newest uh, of the Order of Canada, there were, I think, three companions invested today, seven officers and 32 new members. How did it feel to be around that group of folks and, and realizing that you are in, a, in an esteemed group who are making a difference in our country? Well, it was very humbling, and uh, I'm glad I got to represent the music side of, of the world. There's a lot of real good, there's doctors, scientists, barons of industry, and uh, all doing their bit. But what was encouraging to me was that there's the Order of Canada is awarded to people who are seeking, actively participating in building a better country. And that's what we all wanted in that room today, and we were kind of focused on getting there. And it felt good. There was a good positive energy, a very positive energy in, this, in the room. And uh, it made me feel less anxious about our future and better about the future and hope more hopeful for the future of Canadians. Sean McCann, that's a pretty inspiring way to end our interview. We really do thank you and congratulate you. Tony, take us out. Thank you all. Then it comes above, what he chooses, the kisses and the bruises, there ain't nothing here. Then it comes along, it comes along And I am lifted I am lifted, I am lifted When I'm up I can't get down Can't get down, can't get down Holding the politicians and pundits to account. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. This has been, I think, one of the fastest two hours I've ever spent. Uh, So thank you for joining me. Thanks for your texts and your calls and to our guests. Speaking of, it's that time of the week for special guests. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. Dan Riskin, CTV Science and Technology Specialist. Welcome to News Talk Today. Thanks. Do you like my theme song? I do. I do. I don't know if you were listening earlier, but we had Sean McCann from Great Big C, formerly Great Big C on. And so it's been a good music day for me. I've been enjoying it. Oh, right on. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's no great. I mean, it's good. It's not a Great Big C song, but it's, you know, it's pretty good. (laughs) Maybe you can work something out. I'll, I'll see if I can get something to happen. Okay. So tall parents, tall kids, short parents, short kids. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. But this, there's a new study out that underlies how we think we know what goes on with genetics, but it's actually quite complicated. And so figuring out how tall somebody is from their DNA turns out to be like one of the first things people want to do and also turns out to be one of the hardest things to do. And this is a new study that sort of takes another crack at it, looking at the DNA of more than 5 million people in 281 countries to try to see if I know your DNA sequence then can I figure out how tall you are? This would be great for crimes. This would be great for, uh, you know, 
trying to predict what a baby, how, what they're going to grow up to be like, if looking for genetic disorders. You could, you could take a, a baby who's developing and read their DNA to know how tall they should be at this stage. And then if they're not that tall, know that there was medically something not working or something like that, right? There are all kinds of benefits that you could have to being able to just look at the DNA and know how tall they're going to be. And it seems like you should be able to do that because we can look at the DNA and figure out, you know, hair color and eye color and, and all kinds of genetic diseases and freckles and all these other things. But this has been this elusive uh, task. And so in this new study where they looked across these 5 million people, they identified 12,111 different places in the genome that seem to have an opinion about how tall the person should become. All these different things that were linked. And even with all of the information from all of that, the best they could do is come up with a statistical uh, probability that explained less than half of the variation in height. So yes, it's true that tall parents have tall kids and short parents have short kids overall, but we still don't know how to read the DNA and know how tall the kid's going to be, which is kind of weird. And why do you think that is? I think it's because height is the result of a whole lot of things happening at the same time. I mean, you know, you're a connection of a whole bunch of different bones, but there are also a whole bunch of biochemical processes that can affect how long a bone becomes or how quickly it grows or what's happening in the body and how energy is allocated during growth. And so there are a lot of different things that happen. It's not like a Lego set where you pick, I'll take a leg that's that long, and then you put that leg into the person. It's it's a whole developmental process that goes from a fetus to a, a grown human, and it has to work. And so it's it just underlies how complicated it is. And eye color, not as complicated, but how tall you are, quite complicated. There's an interesting thing, though, that comes out out of this study, which is that um, their model is much better at predicting what the height is going to be for people who are white, European ancestry, compared to people of non-European ancestry. So if you have a, a white person, their model can predict about 40% of the variation in height. But if you've got somebody who's not white, it only predicts 10 to 20% of the variability in height. And that really underscores the fact that the data they're working with come from mostly white people. Almost all the genetic studies that we've done, all these studies of genomics, th there's been an overwhelming majority that has been on white people and not sampling the full diversity of people that live on earth. And if we want to understand how the diversity in genetics affects the diversity of what we look like, we really have to fix that. So this is uh, also a wake-up call for researchers, geneticists, that like it's just not sufficient for you to have a study on a whole bunch of white people. You really have to sample the whole world. And what about the flip side of this? We're talking to Dan Riskin this afternoon, uh, Riskin it all with Dan Riskin, part of our show on a weekly basis. What about the flip side, Dan, where, where we, you are able to isolate sometimes when there are syndromes, uh, and I'm thinking of syndromes that involve short stature, are we mm -hmm. not able to isolate what, what gene went wrong or what there was as a, as a malfunction in a certain gene for those type of syndromes that would help explain all this? Absolutely. So you do have a couple of things that can explain a lot of the variability, but where the the, the version of the gene is quite rare that causes stunted growth or something like that, it's not going to work for very many people. And so it might be a very, very good predictor. Like if you've got this genetic abnormality, then you're definitely going to be much shorter than average. But because it only occurs in far less than 1% of people, it doesn't come out as a very useful 
indicator overall because if I take a random person, that gene probably isn't going to have a role to play except that it just didn't show up. So um, yes, absolutely. We have information about certain specific things that can go wrong, but it, you know, it's, it's just an interesting, it's something that biologists have been interested in for a long time. And there's really interesting evidence that before humans ev evolved agriculture, we were generally on average, uh, males were about six feet tall. And then once we developed agriculture, we actually got a lot worse off. It was, it worked really well. And it was, it was a great convenient way for us to distribute food. And there were, there were advantages to it, but we kind of got stuck in it when hunter gatherer societies had actually resulted in people with more free time and people who had uh, better health. And, and so we shrunk about eight inches according to the fossils of humans that we have when we came up with agriculture. And so the environment also clearly plays a huge role in how tall you become and, and malnourished people obviously are not going to get as tall as people that have all the food that they need. And so that's also going to be an important part and is part of the reason you can't explain it all with DNA. I'm Deb Hutton, your host this week for News Talk Today. I'm talking with our science specialist, Dan Riskin. We've only got a couple of minutes, Dan, so tell me quickly. I, I, my kids and I and my husband went to see uh, the Premier Soccer League when we were in London at the end of uh, August. We saw Arsenal. Was it fun? Yeah, it was fantastic. We saw Arsenal play. But it might have been more fun if they had had a robot in the soccer net. You know what? I have seen this paper that we're talking about, and I think you did better to see the actual thing. <laughs> Premier League would be pretty exciting. But they've made a mini cheetah that stands in a lab in front of a net, and people kick soccer balls and try to score on it. And this mini cheetah robot is able to save about 90% of the shots, which is better than the goalies in Premier League. Mind you, the net is a very different size, and the kicks are not quite as good as the people in the Premier League. So it's not really a fair comparison, but still, it's really cool. So they've basically what they've done is they programmed this little cheetah robot, how to sidestep a little bit if the ball's coming close to it, or how to dive for a corner if it's going down there, or how to jump if the ball's going to go above it. Um, and it's got these three moves, and it looks at where the, where the ball's coming from, and it makes these moves really quickly. And it's just, it's it's really neat when you get a robot to do extreme things like that, because it doesn't know where the kick's going to come, and it makes its move in less than a second. And it's it makes for some nice videos, which I can put on social media. I'm a, I'm on Twitter, at Risk and Dan. I'll share some of the videos so you can get a look at it. But it, it's pretty Pretty cool to see this miniature robotic cheetah jumping in front of a soccer ball. But is there a practical use for it? Well, the, the, a lot of these autonomous robots need to figure out how to move in weird ways. And here you've got the, the complicated problem of getting in the path of the ball in a way that's going to prevent the ball from going into the net, but then also sort of landing on your feet so that you're not incapacitated after you've made your initial move. And so that's where they taught it these different jump moves that it can do that still landed on its feet, but have the desired effect. And the idea is that you're just trying to build uh, these robots so that they can do more than just look cool. Because it's one thing to make a robot that can walk, but you know, we've all had that toy that you push walk on it or you push play, and then it just like walks and then one of its feet doesn't get a hold on the ground and it just looks useless and silly. It's much better if these robots that we're developing can figure out how to get from A to B all on their own and limp if they have to and step over whatever they need to step over. Dan Riskin, sort of we are out of time. Thank you for joining us. I'll be back tomorrow.